1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at CyberBit.com slash CyberWire. Cyber gangs work away at the last Shadow Brokers document dump, a look at state connections with criminals in cyberspace, plus insider threats and mole hunts, BrickerBot's author plays a dangerous vigilante game, Hollywood's best depictions of hacking, and there are $43 million in a Nigerian apartment. No, really, $43 million in cash. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 21st, 2017. Cyber criminal gangs are busily at work reverse engineering the tools alluded to in last week's Shadow Brokers document dump, according to what Sensei and Recorded Future tells Cyberscoop, they're observing in the dark web. These gangs are for the most part Russian, but with a significant fraction hailing from China. How much serious labor the gangs will have to put in is a matter for speculation, but it may be less for the Russians than for the Chinese, given the degree to which Russian security and intelligence services have systematically interpenetrated and co-opted criminal organizations. U.S. authorities show signs of pursuing the gangs as a matter of both law enforcement and national security, and BuzzFeed has a long report on the topic. The sources of the Shadow Broker's leaks remain under investigation, but as the Daily Beast notes, signs in the latest set of leaks may point to an insider, which could set off a mole hunt as likely to be disruptive as productive. Whether those signs were inadvertent or deliberately planted to send a message or sow discord remains unknown. Catching insiders bent on behaving badly is rarely as easy as it seems it ought to be. How many people have endured lectures on the motivations of those who turn to spying? Those motives have often been summed up in the acronym MICE for Money, Ideology, Compromise, and Ego, to which one of our stringers once heard a frustrated colleague shout during a counterintelligence lecture, Hey, why does anyone do anything? So, people looking for the usual markers of disaffection, carelessness, instability, unexplained sudden affluence, and so on. But in practice, things like multiple arrests, spectacular infidelity... Tendentious complaints to inspectors general and public but unexplained visits to Russian embassies get overlooked. Well, he always seemed a little odd, but, well, that's just old so-and-so, co-workers say when someone's collared after a decade of spying. Cooler heads now think the rumor that the U.S. hacked North Korean missile tests last weekend is both wishful and wayward. Sure, thinking people throughout the civilized world would like to be reassured that Mr. Kim's nuclear delivery systems could be incapacitated remotely by means short of strike or invasion, but alas, it's rarely that easy. Hack forums is an underground community known for Davy crockett exaggeration and braggadocio. You know what we mean. Everyone who posts is half man, half horse, and half alligator, with a little bit of snapping turtle thrown in. But the self-proclaimed author of BrickerBot, someone calling himself Janitor, seems to be the real thing, according to Bleeping Computer. Janitor registered his profile at HackForums on January 21, 2017, and on the 27th of that month told the discussion board that, quote, you've probably seen a drop in your bot counts by now, end quote, since he'd killed more than 200,000 telnet devices since the previous November. He's since claimed to have bricked about two million IoT devices. Janitor comes across as righteous and impatient. IoT botnets, like Mirai, are in his view a huge problem and one that market forces cannot and will not correct. So he's taken matters into his own hands. He says he wants to force better IoT security and won't shut down Brickerbot regardless of the damage it's causing. Janitor, it's safe to say, is a wanted man. This sort of vigilante action is arguably as big a problem as the issues it seeks to redress. ICS-CERT has issued an alert for BrickerBot, and industrial control system operators have reason to be particularly concerned. ICS-CERT offers this advice. ICS-CERT strongly encourages asset owners not to assume that their control systems are deployed securely or that they are not operating with an Internet-accessible configuration. Instead, asset owners should thoroughly audit their networks for internet-facing devices, weak authentication methods, and component vulnerabilities. Control systems often have internet-accessible devices installed without the owner's knowledge, putting those systems at increased risk of attack." Quote. We heard from Nozomi Network CEO Edgar Captevier, who says Brickerbot is an obvious threat to operating technology systems, where sudden failure without warning presents a very serious problem. Recovery from a Brickerbot infestation, he says, could be both lengthy and expensive. He strongly seconds the advice of ICS-CERT and adds the recommendation that plant operators look into network behavioral analysis. We've had occasion to talk about the Hollywood hack, the guy in the hoodie tapping intently at a keyboard for five seconds or so and then saying, I'm in, as a kernel panic scrolls across the screen. But Dark Reading today published their list of movies and TV shows they think got InfoSec right. Here's their list. Sneakers from 1992, Black Hat from 2015, Enemy of the State from 98, War Games in 83, Minority Report in 2003, and of course, Mr. Robot in 2015. How about you? When do you think Hollywood gets it right, and when does it go spectacularly wrong? Let us know on Twitter. It's at the CyberWire. And finally, you know those Nigerian princes whose bereaved widows are always emailing us for help, transferring their late husbands' legacies? Well, here's a real-world case out of Nigeria. That country's spymaster, their director general of the National Intelligence Agency, has been suspended on a corruption beef connected with the campaign of former President Goodluck Jonathan. Apparently, $43 million were found, much of it in neatly stacked Benjamins, in a nice Lago apartment. The Director General's spokespeople say the apartment was like a safe house for spies and stuff, and that the money was for, you know, covert operations and things. But President Buhari's buying none of it, probably because 43 million bucks is a lot of unexplained sudden affluence, even in Nigeria. So if you get an email from Lagos over the next two weeks, please don't click the link. Chances are they're not writing to you. Or who knows? Maybe they are. Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Ben, welcome back. Um, Saw a story come by recently in the New York Times about uh, a well-known journalist um, and sort of the weaponization of an animated GIF. Um, Fill us in here. What's going on?
2: So this is a gentleman by the name of Kurt Eichenwald. He's a reporter for Newsweek. He became a target of what we call the alt-right on the internet, sort of a group of young, generally conservative males. Eichenwald was a critic of of President Trump during the campaign. He wrote a lot of stories that were very critical uh, of the incoming president, so he became this online target. What happened to him in December is that one of his followers on Twitter sent him an image with an animated GIF uh, that contained flashing capital letters with a blinding strobe light. And this was significant because Mr. Eichenwald has epilepsy, and he's talked a lot about his epilepsy, even on his social media accounts. So the FBI conducted an investigation. Uh, they found the individual that sent this GIF. His name is John Rain Ravello, and he lives in Salisbury, Maryland.
1: And, and I, uh, it, Ben, just just to interrupt you there, I mean, the, sure. the, this animated GIF did trigger a seizure.
2: It triggered a seizure, absolutely. So because of Mr. Eichenwald's epilepsy, his condition caused him to to have a seizure when seeing this image so it caused significant physical harm which is not something we generally see uh with crimes like this right. uh mr Ravello was charged under a criminal cyber stalking uh statute and he was charged with the intent to kill or cause bodily harm and this is a very very unusual charge usually with cyber stalking we're concerned about two things we're concerned about harm to somebody's mental health and well-being Uh, and that can include suicide, or we're concerned about cyber attacks, harm to somebody's internet infrastructure, that sort of thing. It's very rare that something that you send somebody online could trigger physical pain and ultimately a seizure, which obviously is very serious. Another thing that makes this, this case unique is the paper trail on it. The cyber stalker seemed to have known that Mr. Eichenwald had this condition. He had mentioned it before. There was uh, some direct messages that were uncovered as part of the investigation that he intended to activate Mr. Eichenwald's epilepsy. So unlike almost all... Other cases you find of cyber-stalking, there's a paper trial that shows an intent to injure uh, and cause bodily harm. Mr. Ravello, who did this, is is facing up to 10 years in prison for these charges. And uh, the trial is going to take place in Texas, where Mr. Eikenwell lives. And it'll be very interesting to see how that goes.
1: Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com cyber. My guest today is Carson Sweet. He's chairman and chief technology officer at Cloud Passage, where they say they enable enterprises to fearlessly embrace the power of agile computing by delivering innovative, automated security and compliant solutions. We began our discussion around the recent ruling by a U.S. judge ordering Google to hand over emails stored outside the U.S. in order to comply with an FBI search warrant. The case hinges on the federal law called the Stored Communications Act, a law that was written in 1986.
0: The thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, we continue to have these fights uh, about laws that were written 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, they were written at a time when we didn't have, you know, the kind of technology for communication that we have today. And we're seeing more of that today. And, and that's what we're seeing with the the recent Google order. Microsoft went through this uh, some months ago uh, where there was a, a federal government order to turn over information on foreign nationals. And that was actually uh, rejected by judges. And that was appealed. And it was uh, the, the the rejection was upheld. So that was you know good news for privacy, um, not good news for law enforcement. Uh, but this situation, the judge has actually pointed to uh, a thirty year old law that says that uh, it's not a big deal to make a copy of communications from one place to another because it doesn't actually keep the account holder from accessing their data. So it's not a form of theft. Uh, possessory interest is the the term that you hear. Tossed around in this particular case, and therefore uh, Google should make a copy of the communication and put it on U.S. soil, so that essentially the FBI can then request it and and get access to it. So it's uh, it's it's a bit of a a turnaround. It's a little bit surprising to a lot of folks, and again, it it looks to some very old legislation that uh, I doubt very seriously anyone intended to be used this way, because of course. It was developed in 1986. We've got a lot of laws on the books that have to do with physicality, that have to do with possession. You know, uh, an old question that used to come up and it looks like it's bubbling up again in this case. If I make a copy of something that's yours, a digital copy, have I stolen it from you, right? Because theft means that you've been deprived of ownership. Uh, that kind of problem with just the way that laws are written and, and the, the context in which laws were written 10, 15, 20, 30 or more years ago, and those laws, you know, being applied to situations now is, is really sort of the quagmire that we're stuck in.
1: What about the, the mismatch between the, the velocity, you know, at which legislation is updated and the velocity that things develop in cyber?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think that that is um, bigger challenges with the technology velocity we're seeing today. Uh, when you look back at you know the the adoption of let's say client server technology, uh, which took over the world from mainframes, uh, that kind of a disruption was was much slower than the kinds of disruptions we see now. Uh, adoption of web technology uh, happened a little bit faster, and there were more uh, you know ripples, uh, if you will. With these sort of big technology disruptions, there's usually one big seismic shift, and then there are a lot of aftershocks. And and as we go along in our our progression, our evolution of technology, uh, since the days of mainframe, we see more aftershocks every time we see a big disruption. Cloud technology, software as a service, uh, the number of different technologies and platforms available, the number of of communication modes that we have today uh, that we just didn't have um, is is accelerating, and that's going to continue to accelerate. Uh, the way that we legislate today is extremely problematic with regards to trying to keep up uh, with the with the uh, technology advancement that's happening, and so you know the the next one that we talk about in in the security world quite often is uh, you know machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, these technologies are starting to have a big positive impact on the security world, and of course we don't have enough security practitioners out there, and we can't develop and and grow that skill set fast enough. And so what does that mean from a legal perspective? Uh, You know, is something that a machine uh, dictates or a machine discovers, uh, is that admissible? Is it something that is probable cause? There are all these issues now around artificial intelligence and machine learning. So that's just one example of what's next with regards to legislation uh, struggling to to keep up with innovation. Uh, And then the international question comes in, and that's really where a lot of the issues we're seeing today come from is does one uh, sovereign state have a right to gain access to another sovereign state's data under uh, overt legal means and and so you know even if we do figure this out for a single nation state then we have to figure it out for the international community as well so there have been a lot of discussions around do you do you have the right to delete certain things about yourself and uh, can you call up google and say i want you to wipe out all the data you have about you know here's my name and my email address you know, run that to ground for a minute around, um, let's say that, you know, there was a law passed in the United States that said that any consumer had the right to contact any uh, vendor and say, delete my stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Very much like the do not call list that we, we came up with. Well, then mm-hmm. how do we implement that, right? So, So that alone, from a practical perspective. Becomes a massive problem with regards to e discovery. So, where is my data? Could any of these massive providers and collectors of data even find uh, everywhere that my data lives uh, and then prove to me that it's been deleted? So, from a practical perspective, I think our society has gotten to a point we may be beyond the point of no return. At some point, the reality needs to be what does privacy now mean in a digital society? I think that's really the bigger question. Uh, and some of these issues around deletability of personal data. Uh, I think are sort of harbingers of that conversation starting.
1: That's Carson Sweet from Cloud Passage, and that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.